Hello and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Helen McFadgen to discuss the intersection of artificial intelligence and intellectual property. Helen is a patent and trademark attorney with a background in artificial intelligence and mechatronics engineering. She has successfully obtained patents, trademarks, and designs for businesses in Australia and overseas in a large number of technology areas, including machine learning and image classification, automation, smart devices, audio signal processing, embedded software, and control systems. Helen, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. If you look at the list of the greatest inventions of the 20th century, you'll find they all have one thing in common. From tea bags to toasters and from cell phones to cellophane, they all take the form of physical objects and are, or at least were, protected by patents. Yet since the turn of the century, the nature of inventions has changed significantly. And many of the greatest inventions of the 21st century take the form of computer code. But how do you protect an invention when you can't physically touch it? That's something we're going to be discussing in today's episode. But before we begin, whenever I think of lawyers, the first thing that springs to my mind are trial attorneys. I just rewatched A Few Good Men last night. So you got Tom Cruise as a trial attorney there, and you have all the TV legal dramas. You know, many years ago, I wanted to grow up to be Ellie McBeal. And <laughs> you've got shows like Bull and Boston Legal. But Intellectual property law, it seems to be something quite different. In fact, one of the things I was really fascinated about that you told me when we first met was that the basic qualification to become a patent lawyer is actually a technical degree, such as engineering, rather than a law degree. Yes, that's right. So patent attorneys are quite different to lawyers. And I suspect lawyers are quite different to lawyers on TV. So <laughs> patent attorneys are, are, are a very specialised profession. In order to become a patent attorney, you need to first have a degree in either science and engineering, and then you go on to do very specific specialised studying in intellectual property law. Uh, and you also need two years of work experience at a IP firm and fill out a thing called a statement of skill before you can become registered. So it's, it's a very, very specialized area. I guess if you, if you think of intellectual property law as a, as a specific area of law in general, patent attorneys and patent law sits in an even more specialized area of intellectual property law. And then if you look at patent attorneys as a group, you know, everybody's got different science and engineering backgrounds. So you've got patent attorneys that specialize in, say, in my area, software, electronics, ICT type inventions. You've got patent attorneys that do chemistry and life sciences and, you know, separately mechanical engineering as well. So we're specialized and then specialized even more in our specific technical areas in our specific area of law. So you initially did a degree in mechatronics engineering. What made you decide to go into IP law rather than pursuing a career as a mechatronics engineer? Uh, that's a really good question. So this is going to make me sound really old, but back in my day <laughs> when I finished my mechatronics engineering degree, gosh, it would have been maybe 2008, I think, 2007 or 2008. Um, I did my engineering degree in 
Auckland University. And when I graduated, a lot of my peers either just went into graduate roles for either mechanical or electrical engineers. The industry, you know, in that control systems and, you know, mechatronics engineering, it was, wasn't, there were not that many <laughs> sexy jobs like there are today <laughs> for graduates of mechatronics engineering. So I actually uh, went into business advisory. I got a job with Ernst & Young for my first year out of university and I felt that I wasn't really making use of my technical background. And I still remember, so one of my good friends out of engineering, he went to work for a New Zealand IP firm called AJ Park. And I remember catching up for lunch with him once and I was just like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with my life. <laughs> you know, this is, what do I do? I go back to engineering. You know, I'm not, you know, this is not really the right career choice for me uh, doing business advisory. And he said, you know, why don't you try IP? And I, you know, it's kind of, you, st- you get to use your technical background. He, he went through with me what, you know, you would need to do to become registered. It's a bit of engineering, it's a bit of IP, which is something new. There's a bit of business involved. You kind of need to work with clients and trying to understand their commercial objectives and how you can use intellectual property to help them achieve that. And it sounded really interesting to me. So I looked into it more and fast forward 14 years, I'm, <laughs> I'm still in intellectual property. So... I thank him for that good advice. I personally find the whole intellectual property law discipline fascinating. A few months back, I was visiting my parents and I ended up with this huge conversation with my dad about how Disney uses IP law to protect its characters. I don't suppose you've heard of the movie Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. Not the movie, but I've read a few Winnie the Pooh books to my three-year-old. (laughs) <laughs> this that- is not <laughs> this is not for your three-year-old this is a winnie the pooh horror movie <gasps> oh no i have never <laughs> i didn't realize such a thing existed i'm gonna have to go look it up now <laughs> anyway my dad and i were in jb hi-fi and we came across this copy of winnie the pooh blood and honey and our immediate thought was how have disney's lawyers not shut this movie down <laughs> Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question. Well, so it's, it's, that's more copyright, which is not my area of expertise. I do know like a tiny, tiny bit. What I suspect has happened is that because there's some, some uh, exclusions and copyright infringement. uh, So, you know, um, parody and satire, those type of things may be considered either. I can't, I don't, I can't remember the specific wording for the provision, something along the lines of fair use or fair dealing equivalent to those types of provisions that, you know, there are certain things that you can do that exempt you from copyright infringement. Maybe that in this particular case, because it's parody and satire, it falls within that exclusion. We actually did Google this and we found out the answer to this one. Winnie the Pooh is now out of copyright. Oh, okay. Well, that, that, that <laughs> explains it too. <laughs> because it's been 70 years beyond the death of the author, original I think it's publication date or whatever. Anyway, the point is Winnie the Pooh, the first book is out of copyright, the second book isn't. So you can make a horror movie with all the characters from the first book, but you can't include Tigger because Tigger didn't appear until the second book. Right. I'm still amazed that Disney didn't find a way of shutting this down, but I'm pretty sure if there was a way, Disney would have done it. <laughs> but maybe it's, you know, it's it's promoting Winnie the Pooh inadvertently for them. So, you know, it could be a win-win for both parties. Who knows? 
Not sure, not sure. <laughs> Depending on the movie, I haven't seen it, so I don't know. <laughs> I haven't actually watched it yet, but I do have the copy because, as I said, my dad and I were convinced that Disney would be working really hard in order to destroy every copy of this, so we figured buy it immediately before. Yes, no it could, could be a collector's item. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, this raises the question. You've got your patents, your trademarks, and your copyrights, and I understand that copyright does apply to things like Winnie the Pooh. But what is the difference between a copyright, a patent and a trademark? Okay. So <clears throat> there are different types of IP protection. Um, there are registered rights and there are um, things like copyright where you don't need to register. It just subsists as soon as you know somebody creates a piece of work. I'll go to the registered rights first. So for patents, patents are for the protection of invention. So if it's just something that's functional, if you invent something new in the area of science and technology, typically that would fall under patent protection. Trademarks are for brands. So, you know, things like Coca-Cola, that will be a trademark. There's one more type of registered right, which is designs. And that is to protect the visual appearance of something. So if you design a new watch face and you want to protect what that watch face looks like, then you could use a registered design to do that. Is this like how I think Cadbury trademarked the shade of purple that they use on their wrappers? Okay, so that's a trademark not a design. So trademarks, you can, you can, there's different forms of trademarks. You can have, you know, just the word mark, you can have a logo, you can have a word and a logo, you can, there's uh, non-traditional types of trademarks like colour. So, you know, a, a specific shade of purple for Cadbury's chocolate, the distinctive shade of, you know, what would you call that colour for Tiffany? Green oh, type. Robin, Robin's egg blue. That's the one, <laughs> you know, the, the specific shade of red at the, the back of those shoes for what's the guy's name? Christ, Le, Louboutin. Christ, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> so you can have those types of trademarks as well. Um, and you can have shape. So things like, you know, the Coca-Cola bottle, the shape of the Coca-Cola bottle could be a, a registered, a, a trademark. You can also register the shape as a design but a design has a limited time so in Australia it's 10 years but if you have it registered as a trademark a trademark can go on for indefinitely as long as you keep paying the renewal fees every 10 years you can have the trademark registered for as long as along as long as you you want so that can be quite a, a powerful a piece of IP protection and so then for copyright copyright is more for the expression of an idea. So it doesn't protect the idea itself. It's the specific expression of the idea. So things like written material, books, artistic works, cinematographic works, those types of things. Software code, the code itself would be copyright protected. Oh, it's interesting. So I'd never thought of software code as being copyright. I'd always thought of things like books and movies. Mm, includes includes the software code as well. So with something like the Windows operating system, that would be subject to copyright? Correct, correct. You know, so proprietary code will be copyright protected and we use it under our licence. Right, that's very interesting. <laughs> and what about patents? Patents protect the functionality. It's quite a broad type of protection. So, So for example, if we go back to talking about 
software, the code itself will have copyright protection, but then, you know, that copyright can't stop someone from copying the functionality if they just look at how it functions and they go write their own code, but they're not copying the code itself. So if you want to protect the functionality of something, really the only way to do that will be through patent protection. So if we take, I'm just thinking of my cell phone. So I've got an iPhone, so Apple. And if you turn off an Apple iPhone, you've got the swipe right to turn off thing. Yep. So that would be, there'd be code sitting behind it that would cause that to work. Mm -hmm. But there's also the functionality that if I swipe right, I turn off my phone. Correct. So if Android were to put that in there, that functionality in the Android operating system, even if that was using different code, if that was patent protected, they wouldn't be able to do that. Is that right? They would be able to if they have a license from the patent holder. Okay. Yes. And with electronics and particularly in the area of, say, for example, telecommunications, there are these things called standard essential patents. So you have these patents that form the standard so that, you know, things can talk to each other. And there are guidelines for licensing those so that it's fair for players in this area to use the technology under a license agreement. So that everything's compatible with everything else. Correct. That's right. To avoid the situation where iPhones can only phone iPhones and <laughs> yeah. Android phones can only phone <laughs> Android phones. and yeah. That would not be a good situation. <laughs> I always thought, you know how uh, Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the internet, basically gave it to the world for free. I always thought, imagine how annoyed his family were that he gave it to the world for free. Because they must be thinking, gosh, we could have been billionaires based on this. And I think, you know, that it's something to maybe think about is, you know, sometimes when you're working on new development, maybe IP is not really you know, at the front forefront of your mind. But, you know, once you let the cat out of the bag, it's difficult to then retrospectively get protection if depending on when you've disclosed it. So it, it it's quite important to, you know, have things like this so that you raise awareness in the R&D community. People are doing work to, to, to solve problems and um, come up with new innovations that, you know, that they kind of think about IP protection concurrently with, you know, whatever their commercial goals might be so that they don't lose out on the opportunity to protect their IP if that is something that they want to pursue. How could you potentially lose it? So would it be if I told the world I've came up with this great invention and then people started copying me and then a month later I said, oh, actually, I'd like to pay for this. <laughs> I take yes. it I couldn't. Well, so the, it, it's based on, so there's three main requirements to getting valid patent protection and that part kind of is based on one of those requirements and one of the main requirements is that the invention needs to be new and so novel at the time of filing for your patent application and so then it's incredibly important to keep everything confidential until you worked out you've spoken to a patent attorney worked out what your patent strategy is because if you go and publicly disclose your invention before you filed a patent application then your patent application at the time that it's filed is not new anymore in light of your own disclosure. What happens if you just tell a few family and friends? So 
Yeah. So if it's, you know, a confidential discussion and everybody understands it's confidential, then that's probably fine. Still, I would advise to to keep it confidential until you've worked out what you want to do. There are provisions we've got um, in Australia. There's a 12-month grace period provision to help us salvage situations where you had inadvertently disclosed and you still want to pursue patent protection, which you just didn't know. But that's only for 12 months. So if you, you've disclosed or you've written journal articles, you've published all of the details and you've waited more than 12 months to go and talk to a patent attorney, yeah, that's stuff. a little bit too late. Yeah, not much we can do at that point. So 12 months. Okay. I'll keep 12, that in 12 mind. months n- not uh, in Australia. So, you know, there's no such thing as a worldwide patent. So often organizations will want to protect their invention, say in our major trading partners at US, Europe. So not every country around the world has this provision. So it's better to just not disclose. And if you absolutely, absolutely must, and there's not enough time, have at least, you know, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement in place to make sure that the any meetings that you have or any discussions you have are, are confidential. But ideally, you, you should just file it before you have the discussion. Would you have to file it in, just say you wanted to cover the major jurisdictions. So Australia, European Union, US, UK, uh, major Asian countries, things like that. So would you have to file all of those patents simultaneously? No. So how the process works in a nutshell is that you can file what's called a provisional application. And we have international treaties with most of our trading partners. So uh, a provisional application will give you pending patent protection for most industrialized countries around the world for a period of 12 months. And that's just uh, the application that sits with the Australian Patent Office, doesn't get published, it just doesn't to get examined, it just sits there and your rights, um, you have some rights that start from the priority date, which is the day that you file. And then 12 months has gone by, sorry, 12 months passes from the date that you filed, then you can make some decisions as to how you want to continue with the patent protection process. So you can either file like another bundle application, which is called an international PCT application that holds kind of your rights pending in most industrialized countries for a further 18, roughly 18 months, or you can then go into the specific countries that you want to directly say, file an Australian complete application, file a US application. And then those applications eventually will be examined and become granted. The holding bundle application, the PCT application, just delays that process for a further 18 months. So at the end of the PCT phase, you still have to select the individual countries. It's just that you might not be, depending on where the commercialization process is at, you might not be at a position to make that decision as to, you know, where you're going to be making the most money out of your invention, for example, or you haven't, you know, um, sorted out all of your investment deals and, you know, how, how you're going to proceed. So if you needed some more time, there's strategies that we can, we can put in place to help you get some more time. Usually in terms of costs, when you start to select the individual countries to file in, there's a, a large proportion of costs that will be payable at that stage. Something to kind of get bear in mind is with the patent process is that it's an ongoing cost. You'll be paying costs at filing, paying costs at 12 months to complete. Eventually, when everything gets examined, you'll be paying costs at the examination stage. Once it gets granted, there will be fees payable. And then even after that, renewals to keep it alive. So it, there's costs 
payable at stages throughout the life of the patent application and eventually when it becomes granted as a patent. And it's staggered in a way to kind of so that you're not up for all of your costs at once. If you are also concurrently, ideally, you're concurrently commercializing the technology and somewhere along the process, you'll be making money out of it and you can use a portion of your revenue to fund the IP protection costs. And if at any stage you decide that, you know, this is not something that's not worth pursuing anymore, you can just decide to abandon the application. Is there a point where you can no longer renew a patent? So where it automatically goes into the public domain? Yes. So 20 years. Usually it's 20 years for pharmaceutical patents. There's a possibility to extend that term slightly, but for most, for in our technology area, software, electronics, it's, it's 20 years. So you can't extend it anymore after that. So I was just thinking with pharmaceuticals, so they can remain, you can keep on renewing those, but what about something like the secret ingredient, the secret recipe for Coca-Cola? Oh, Is, with- that's not a patent. That's a trade secret. And oh. it's, it's, it's a secret for as long as you keep it a secret. Okay, so, so it's yes, lo- it's not a registered right. Yeah, so you know, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken, I think, um, the, the, the eleven secret recipe. Yeah, the the herbs and spices or Coca Cola's ingredients. So those, I believe, are trade secrets, and it's not a registered right. You basically have to put controls. It it, it falls under the um, confidential information, so you need to put controls in place to make sure that it's recognised as a trade secret and that you do keep it a secret because once the, once the secret is out, then then it's not a trade secret anymore. <laughs> so presumably anyone who works in whatever part of KFC prepares the Colonel's special blend of 11 herbs and spices, they would have to sign some sort of confidentiality agreement that they don't tell the world. Probably will be part of their employment agreement. I presume if they do come into contact with that information, but if you're just working at KFC and you have this flour mix that's got the herbs in it, you Unless you do some lab testing, you're not going to know yeah. what's in there. Have you ever Googled what those 11 herbs and spices are? I have not. Have you? Yes, I have. <laughs> I, I don't know if this is real or not, but almost all of them are salt and pepper. Oh, okay. That's so why it just, tastes so good. <laughs> yeah. So it's like salt, black pepper, white pepper, garlic salt, MSG. Oh, all the good stuff, yes. <laughs> I understand what you've said, but as someone who's never filed a patent before, if I came up with the next chat GPT, I still probably wouldn't know whether it was worth protecting or not because I just don't have experience in this field. Is there any things, any guidelines that you could give someone like me or one of our listeners to help us determine whether our brilliant invention is worth protecting using a patent or similar, or if it's just rubbish code that no one cares about? <laughs> well, okay. So I guess there's two, a few different considerations. You know, when you're developing something new, it's, it's good to consider what your end goal is. So what is, are you trying to commercialize this? Are you just trying to do something you know, to share, to contribute to, you know, any, any area, to share knowledge and promote learning. If, if there's some kind of a commercial objective, then it will be useful to consider whether some form of IP protection, not necessarily patents, because not everything is suitable for patent protection. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, you know, whether some form of IP protection will help you achieve that goal. So if you're, you know, 
releasing some kind of a product or you're trying to draw investment, you're trying to do up a deal with other business partners, it might be worth considering having some IP protection to give you more leverage in those negotiations. I mentioned that not everything is suitable for patent protection. I also mentioned that the, the three main criteria, one of them was new. So you need to have, you know, come up with something that is new over everything that currently exists. And the second requirement is that whatever is new needs to be not obvious for somebody that has general understanding of this technical area. An example I could give, not necessarily in software, is, for example, you, you, you know, somebody invite, in, uh, invents a pen and you just invent a different pen that writes in a different color. You know, that's not inventive enough. So there's those two criterias. And there's a third criteria, which is particularly important for computer implemented inventions, because there's this thing called patentable subject matter. So not everything that exists under the sun can be protected by patents. Things like abstract ideas, business methods, those sorts of things are not patentable subject matter by themselves. And it's relevant for, you know, foundation technologies like software and AI and machine learning because it can be, these tools can be applied in any industry. So you've got computer implemented systems for, you know, business administration in fintech, e-commerce and online marketing, for example. And this is kind of raises a question of if business methods are not patentable by themselves, at what point will the computer implementation help push that over the line to meet that requirement for patentable subject matter? And this is a really complicated area of law and it's been changing for the entire time that I've been in this profession. I remember, you know, in the beginning when I when I first started 14 years ago, it was quite easy to get computer implemented inventions over the line. You just had to kind of say that, you know, whatever software method that you're implementing is implemented on a computer. These days, the requirement is, a, um, the bar is a lot higher. It's a lot harder to get computer implemented inventions over the line in order to meet this patentable subject matter requirement. I guess to summarize the requirement, the key is that there needs to be something technical. So you need to be applying the machine learning or AI algorithm to solve some technical problem. You know, there needs to be some technical purpose. It, it could be, for example, applied to some technical problem that's outside the computer, for example, you know, a control system that's controlling a robot arm, a manufacturing line, you're doing some image processing for obstacle detection, obstacle avoidance detection, you're using it in, you know, medical technologies, for example. Anything in a self-driving car, pretty much. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The problem comes when you're using the machine learning AI algorithm to maybe just make just automate a business process business administrative process or you've got some yeah so you've got something that might be a manual reporting process and you're just automating it on a computer and there might be some AI machine learning models in there to help make some predictions to make you determine I don't know um, something that's business related so then you don't have that technical problem that you're solving outside the computer, the requirement then shifts to the consideration of the computer implementation. So are you making 
in the implementation of that software code, are you doing something clever with, you know, memory allocation? Are you making the computer run more efficiently? The language that they use to test this is whether or not there's an improvement to the functions of the computer that's irrespective of just the data being processed. And that can be quite a difficult requirement to meet because in real life, when you're solving these business problems or you're implementing the software solution for an e-commerce solution, you're not really thinking about how to make the computer run more effectively or efficiently, necessarily maybe, because you're thinking about how to solve this business problem. But that's not to say that that doesn't happen. It's just something to think about if you want to pursue patent protection for something that is in those areas, in those e-commerce and, and fintech areas, that the focus will be the computer system rather than the, the data it's processing to give you the benefit. Okay. So if we use the example of some sort of stock trading company, mm. a computer system where people can enter in their trades for the stock market that probably wouldn't be patentable because it's basically just an electronic version of what could have been done by a patent uh, paper form. But if it was software that automated trades based on special criteria in order to maximise profits, that sounds like something that might be potentially patentable. If there is some improvement to the computer rather than, you know, the business outcome the financial outcome. So if you're, you know, if there's the data set so huge, you've had to change how you process the data to make it viable, you know, usable in real life or in real time. So the the technical improvements are the computer system itself rather than rather than the the transformation of data. Okay. So if it was because of this software, the computer runs faster and more efficiently. Yeah. In performing its trading, that would count. But actually just programming the system to know when to perform the trade, that wouldn't necessarily be patentable. Yeah, it might be difficult if you're just if that's just a, a business problem that you're you're solving that or, or a finance solution that you're providing. The criteria that it needs to improve the function of the computer, irrespective of the data. So if you think, okay, we're we're not we're not using this to run financial data analysis. Well, you can use it to run, I don't know, something else, some other data. You still have that. That improvement is still there, regardless of what data you're feeding through the system. It's almost like saying, so you know, the application is relevant. Then you're actually just looking at the computer implementation, the software solution itself does something clever. And, and, and solve some technical problems within the computer, you know, like with bandwidth, you know, efficiency, th- those sorts of things. So quite a difficult requirement to meet in my experience, because typically in, in real life, you might not be thinking about doing that when you're I- implementing the software solution. But I, I should mention that this is an area of law that is still changing. <laughs> and actually in Australia, so what I mentioned to you is what, what the criteria, the patent office, the, the examination practice of the, the Australian patent office, and these are the rules that they're giving us uh, mm-hmm. when we go through examination for these types of patent applications. But in terms of case law in this area, where it's very unsettled because actually last year we've had a, a high court case, which is the, the highest authority in Australia, we had a split decision. So 
six judges heard the appeal and three judges said one thing and three judges said something else. So we're in, you know, the most, it's probably as uncertain as it, it can be at the moment in Australia. Hopefully things will change. So I guess the only thing that we know for sure is that this area of law is probably going to change, but we just don't know when. And at the moment, this is what we know. And this is what we know also based on what is happening in Europe and US. So usually when we draft a patent specification, we're not just drafting it for Australia because often organisations will want protection in the US or Europe. So we kind of need to be mindful of all of these requirements that are in these other jurisdictions as well so that when we draft it, we, we make sure we have the best quality specification to give us the best fighting chance of meeting these criteria in other places. I'm still having a bit of trouble getting my head around how you could potentially or what a patentable AI or machine learning based invention might look like. Can you give me some examples so that I can visualize that? Yeah. So two things, either you have a technical application for the machine learning. So in the area of, like you mentioned before, in autonomous vehicles, you might be using it to solve a particular problem in a specific area, a field of science and technology. Those things are are usually quite easy to get over the line for patentable subject matter. It's only the e-commerce, fintech, online marketing, online bidding systems, for example, when you're using the software to solve a business problem, it's a, it's a lot harder because we don't, because the business, business methods are considered not patentable subject matter. So there's a, for those solutions, the requirement for technical consideration in the computer implementation is a lot higher than it would be otherwise if you had some technical, if you could meet that technical requirement because you're solving something you know, you're you're working in a field that is technical by nature. Yeah. So it's basically if it's an engineering application of machine learning or AI, then you're probably good. Yep. But if it's a office worker business type thing, then you may run into problems. Yes. Yes. That's right. If it's a you know a new marketing tool or an app to 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 draw, to change consumer behavior. So, but but it really depends on some. It's very blurry because it depends on what you're doing. If you're doing, uh, if you if you're if you're still solving some technical problems in the computer or in, in your in your business application, you might be doing something clever with I don't know image processing. Maybe for example, what would be a good example to determine consumer behavior? Maybe there's some science behind that. That might be helpful. What about in something like? Uh, medical areas. So I'm thinking, I remember watching this video on the internet about this person who had created a machine learning model that was able to take a photograph of some sort of skin lesion Mm. and classify it as either malignant or benign. Mm -hmm. And obviously something like this would have a lot of benefit as a diagnostic tool for Mm -hmm. dermatologists. Yep. Would something like that potentially be patentable? Yes. Yes, I would say so. You still have to meet the requirement for novelty and inventiveness. And the fact that I've seen a YouTube video on it tells (laughs) you it's not novel or inventive. 
they might have had protection before their release. So yes, so you you, you um, that's why it's important to kind of think about that before you go and start promoting it and telling the world about your invention to have kind of your IP strategy already sorted out. Stay away from social media, basically. <laughs> yeah, don't tell the world about your invention just yet. Now, with a machine learning model, you have all the different parts of a machine learning model. So you've got your training data, the algorithm that's used to train the model, and your final model, fitted model itself. Which part of the model are you actually patenting? Is it the final fitted model or all those bits that went into it? That's a really good question. Okay. We need to talk about patentable subject matter again. (laughs) (laughs) So mathematical algorithms. So the simplest form example I could give you, you know, a mathematical equation, F equals MA, E equals MC squared. The equation themselves are not considered patentable subject matter. So the models, a machine learning model, so the European Patent Office considers a machine learning model itself, just the maths itself, that's not patentable subject matter because that's just abstract maths. It's just a complex version of, say, F equals MA. That's the, how they categorize it. But then if you are training a model for a technical purpose, then that's okay. It's, we're going back to the technical application again. Say if you developed a new machine learning model that you could just use for anything, you know, say you were the first person to develop the neural network, a basic neural network. You couldn't just patent the the, ne- the, new, the neural network itself. So the algorithm. The model itself. But you could, if you used it to solve some technical problem, applied it to uh, for a technical purpose, and that potentially could be patentable. In terms of what we're actually claiming, so maybe I need to go back and explain what a patent specification looks like. So it's kind of a a patent. So in order to file a patent application, you have to prepare this thing called a patent specification. And it's quite a lengthy document. It's part technical, part legal. You have the first part of the application, which just talks about the problem, the solution, and it needs to describe the invention in sufficient detail for someone else to, who understands this field of technology to be able to put it into practice without having to do any additional inventing by themselves. So that forms the description part. And then at the end of your specification, you've got a list of paragraphs, numbered paragraphs called the claims. And that's the legal part, the most legal part of the document that defines the scope of protection. And that needs to be supported by your description. So how we could craft the claims for a computer implemented invention involving machine learning model is that we could claim, so software typically are all method claims because software is just executing, you know, instructions. So it's just, it's executing a method essentially. So we can, we can claim the, the training method just to, for a technical purpose. So it needs to be training it to do something. And we can also claim a system, you know, that might include some hardware parts and the software part. So if I'm thinking of a system for autonomous drive or for determining how to move in an autonomous vehicle, it might include some hardware sensors. It might include the data from the sensors. It might include a machine learning model that reads the sensors and feeds the data through something, or it's, a, it's already a learned model, a trained model that it, it just spits out the decision and then tells the, the vehicle what to do. Um, so that we can we can protect that as an overall system. We can also claim some hardware components that has the trained model 
saved on it. So, you know, we will typically define what's a called, you know, a, con- a computer readable medium, basically, you know, the memory part of the computer. And you can, you can, you can claim that which contains the model trained in accordance with, you know, a method that you've, you've set out, which is the training method. In terms of the protection, pattern protection is quite broad ranging. So if you have claims to the method, you would also have some protection to the product which results directly from the method. So if you claim the training method, the direct product of that training method will be the trained model, I think. You'll likely also have some protection for that trained model as well. But you can also claim directly the hardware which has the model saved on it. Something I should also mention is that because this area is so new, We've seen exponential growth in the number of applications that involve machine learning and AI solutions in, say, like the last, I don't know, five, seven years. So these applications are still going through examination processes, and we don't have a lot of case law in this area. So we don't know. (laughs) We don't have a lot of answers for certain, but we suspect, you know, moving forward, some of these will be litigated and we'll know more. But in the meantime, you know, we just, yeah, so we, we, this is what, what we're, we're doing is um, trying to craft the specification in a way that gives you the best protection from all of the different aspects. When you were describing the pattern application before, you were mentioning the description. Now, I can imagine that would be relatively easy to do if you're describing a physical object. Because you could say, you know, it's this size, it looks like this, it's got these bits and pieces inside it, it does this. How do you describe something which only exists in the form of computer software, really? That's a really good question. And it's a challenge for this particular area, you know, because it's not something that you can see, you can't just look at a CAD drawing and figure out how it works. It's the preparation of a good quality patent specification is a collaborative effort between the patent attorney and the inventors. So communication is so important to make sure that all of the relevant detail ends up in the patent specification. So you want to be working with a patent attorney that understands this field of technology. So they're asking the right questions to get that information from the inventors. It, it can be a little bit of an iterative process, particularly for people that don't have experience. In this area, it's difficult to kind of know what type of information you need to provide to a patent attorney because, you know, your project could be huge and you might not have documented it all and, you know, where do you even start, right? So a lot of that you need to have guidance from the patent attorney to kind of get the information from you. It might go back and forth a few times until you have all of the relevant information that you can used to then and support a good quality specification. But it can take some time, depending on how much of that information is readily available and how much you kind of have to go back and prepare, probably looking at, say, at least three to four weeks, maybe more, to kind of put something like this together. You were talking about TV shows before, and uh, remember watching an episode of Suits. Have you seen Suits? No, Meghan Markle put me off it. Oh, <laughs> I watched it before she became married. Yeah, yeah. Um, became royalty. Yes, (laughs) that's right. And I remember there was this episode in Suits. It was one of the earliest ones. And it was about patents. All right. And and, uh, I think I vaguely remember what happened. It was 
there was an inventor and he went and had like a investment, a meeting with some investors in the morning and they wanted to file a patent application on the same day. And then, so they were trying to work out how to file this patent application. They filed a patent application a day late and there was an issue with an earlier filed application. So they had to file a challenge to that earlier application. They eventually sorted out all of the issues and secured investment from the investors in the order of hundreds of millions of dollars. And all of that happened in like two days. <laughs> it was just the most ridiculous thing. Oh, and I think the patent application got examined like as soon as it was filed. And, you know, he had time to go pay tennis during the day. <laughs> it was so, you know, it, it, for, for a patent attorney that, that knows how long these things take, you just, I don't even... <laughs> It's, it's just ridiculous on so many levels. I can't even begin to tell you. Yeah, so it, it, usually you wouldn't, you would, if I look back at the last 14 years of my career, I think I only recall. So there's only been one time where I've had to file a patent, prepare a patent specification from scratch and file it on the same day because the client wanted to disclose the next day. We had the information the day before. And that was a, a frantic day. I can tell you, I did not have time to go play tennis <laughs> during the day. <laughs> How long does it normally take? So normally it takes about three to four weeks. If if the information is, if you have all of the information at the start of the three to four weeks, the process of preparing the specification, it's quite, it can be quite a lengthy document in our area, software area, probably at least 30 to 40 pages for the simplest one, I would say typically. And a patent attorney would prepare that from scratch. It's not, we don't have templates or precedents for, for it. We we, we will prepare it from scratch. So we need to allow time for an initial meeting to discuss what the invention is about to make sure the patent attorney understands. The patent attorney will then go away and prepare some claims. You might discuss that and make sure everybody's on, aligned um, and then they go away to prepare the rest of the specification. That could, that could take about a, a week or two. And then there's review processes, depending on the size of the organization and the size of the team and the number of people involved, you need to give people enough time to review and comment. That needs to come back and you might you know, have a, a couple of rounds of revision. So all up, probably come you know, three to four weeks typically before the specification can be finalized and everyone's happy with it and you proceed with filing. But if you don't have all of the information ready to go at the outset and you're having an exploratory discussion with the attorney to figure out whether you know you've got something to patent and then you go away and compile the information, you know, that you need to give yourself enough time to put the put the, put the information together. Uh, and it, it, it's not, you know, we're not just filling in a form and ticking some boxes. It's quite involved process that, that we need to we need to explain in enough detail for someone else to put the invention into practice and give examples and describe the best method of putting the invention into practice. So there's a quite a bit of information that we need to put into a specification. And it's so important, so, so important to make sure that it's of good quality at the time of filing because there's limited opportunities to fix any problems later on once you filed. And so much of it turns on the specification. So, you know, if you have a good specification, it's easier to, to prosecute through the different patent offices. It's easier to overcome those objections of novelty and inventive step and patentable subject matter if you have, you know, more information to work with. 
and you've described the invention properly. And also, you know, it's more likely to hold up to third-party challenges so that you can enforce the IP right when you need to. What happens if one of the inventors isn't human? So if you created an invention with the assistance of some sort of generative AI tool like ChatGPT? That's an interesting question. So you might have heard of the Dabas cases. I'm not sure if you have. It's you, it's it's very rare that anything in patent law makes it into mainstream media. <laughs> this is one yeah. of the examples. Um, so uh, someone came up with this. There's this this AI machine called Dabas, and allegedly solved some problems by itself and generated these outputs that it considered inventions and 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 that was filed into um, patent applications and filed around the world in, in many different countries. And that was litigated through the courts in Australia to determine, purely to determine the question of whether or not the word inventor in our legislation can be interpreted to include an AI machine. And the answer, the short answer is no, we need to have a, a human inventor named on a patent application for the application to be valid. That's quite an academic question though, because it's, you know, the it doesn't go into exploring whether or not, you know, in our current level of development, whether or not in real life, if you have a GAI tool that facilitates the R&D process, whether or not that tool is actually an inventor, because you know, the AI is just processing data and it's, you know, being trained. There's always a, a person behind it that either built the AI model, is training it, setting parameters and determining whether or not the output is viable, right? So it might help reduce the time of R&D because it's able to churn through more data and provide you with, you know, maybe some options to help you think of things that you you might not have otherwise in your R&D process, but the person still needs to maybe determine whether or not that outcome is workable and potentially select one of many different outcomes because, you know, or, or modify it in some way so that you maximize the, the benefits or it, it, it works better than, than the other options that it, it provided you. So, Really, is the AI an inventor in that sense? I think what my personal opinion is that it's it's more of a tool that the inventor has used to help him or her or the team to come up with the invention rather than it qualifying as an inventor, really, because it has no consciousness. It doesn't know what it's doing. It's just processing data and giving you some output. You know, it's like if you ask the question, who discovered Jupiter's moons? It's it's Galileo, not not his telescope. It just so happens that he also invented the telescope. Yes. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. So is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Look, I think it's such a revolutionary and powerful foundation technology that can be applied to so many different industries. I think generally we're, we're going to see wider adoption. It's just going to be in, I mean, it's already in so many aspects of our lives, but maybe more so in the next three to five years. I think for me, I would like to see it help us, 
you know, solve some of the, the big problems that we're facing, like, for example, climate change. You can call me cynical. Maybe I feel like a problem like that, you know, you, you're, you need exponential shift in human behavior and or exponential shift in technology development. But the human behavior piece is difficult if we're just relying on governments and policy change to slowly drive that. It's such an urgent problem. We need to have a quicker solution. And AI potentially could help us, you know, come up with the solution. And, you know, so I, I think, I, I don't know, I don't have for crystal ball. I, I, I hope that in the next three to five years, we can have some more AI driven or technology driven innovations to, you know, really help us tackle some of these big problems that we're facing for humanity, for our planet. I reckon it's got a lot of potential in the medical space. So developing cures for horrible diseases. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's definitely something I that's definitely a major world problem I think it could solve in the next well, everything yes. takes longer than you expect. So <laughs> I'd yeah. like to say three to five years, but at some point anyway. Yes, yes. Good to have the tools to make it possible. So it's it's exciting that, you know, I I know AI comes from a, a long history and it's only really in the last, say, 10, 20 years that it's really taken off with, you know, having more powerful computers and having the data sets there. So even though it's it's taken off, I feel like we're still kind of just... we're at the we're we're just scratching the surface you know there's so much more potential so who knows you know what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data I think my main advice would be to think about the commercial strategy early and if you're interested in IP protection talk to a patent attorney as soon as possible and keep your work confidential in the meantime. I can't tell you how many times I've had meetings where the inventors are so excited about what they've developed, but then halfway through the meeting, they tell you they've disclosed it more than 12 months ago. And it's it's heartbreaking because there's nothing, you know, there's nothing anyone can do at that, that point. If it's already been disclosed, it's already out there. This within 12 months, maybe there's something we could do. It's not ideal. So I think the most important thing is to, to think about it early and to get the advice early so that you don't lose that opportunity just because you didn't know. Yeah. So stay off social media. <laughs> yeah. For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? Uh, happy f- for anyone to drop me an email or connect with me on LinkedIn, send me a message. I'm always happy to have a chat. Okay. And I'll put your LinkedIn page up on the show notes. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.